Um, Let me pray as we look at Ezra 4 together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that uh, you show us what it is to be one of your children. Father, thank you that you show us how to be one of your children, what it will be like, what it will feel like, uh, and how to follow the Lord Jesus. Father, please help us to listen to you as you speak to us this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, I want to to start by getting you to imagine that someone asked you uh, to explain what the Christian life is like. What should they expect if they were going to start following Jesus? Uh, Just imagine you got asked that question. Uh, What Bible verses would you take them to? Where would you go? If you were designing one of those nice uh, Instagram pictures to post online, uh, which passages would you choose to show what the Christian life is like? I wonder if any of these would make the cut. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 John 3 verse 13, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Or John 15 verse 20, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Not the kind of verses that we stick on our fridge, are we? Are they? But the, the Bible is really clear that, that these are the sorts of things we should expect as God's people. As you read through the Bible time and time again, you see that Opposition and persecution are the the normal experience for the Christian. Jesus says we should expect it. The Apostle Paul says we should expect it. And so does the writer of Ezra. As you probably picked up from the reading just then, Ezra chapter 4 is all about opposition. All about the attempt to stop God's people doing God's work. And so it's opposition that's going to be our focus this morning. We're going, to, we're going to see what it looks like, and then we're going to think about how we might respond when it comes. So what does opposition look like for the people in Ezra? Well, the first thing that we can see in chapter 4 is that opposition can be subtle. It can be subtle. Uh, so far, if you've been with us, uh, Ezra has, so far in Ezra, things have been going pretty well for God's people, haven't they? Uh, Chapter 1, we saw Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, send them back to Jerusalem, the people back to Jerusalem with bags of gold and all they need to rebuild their temple. Uh, Then in chapter 2, thousands of Jews packed their bags and headed home. And then last week in chapter 3, we saw that the altar rebuilt, the foundations of the temple laid, and the worship of God begin again. So far, so good. But then in 4 verse 1, the people hit their first obstacle, don't they? Look at verse 1 again. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the families. For the first time in the book so far, we meet enemies, enemies of God's people. And just as we might start to worry, what are these enemies going to do, they they say something surprising in verse 2. They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Urshadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. It's not your 
not your standard opposition tactics, is it? Here are people clearly identified as enemies of God, but the first thing they seem to do is turn up with spades in hand and offer to help. It's not what we would expect from an enemy. So, So what is going on? Well, the clue's actually in the reason that they offer to help. Just look at what they say again in verse 2. We seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ursodon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Around 200 years earlier, God's people had split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The northern kingdom, Israel, rebelled against the Lord. They rejected his rule, and so eventually God sent Assyria to wipe them out. The Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom and deported its people. But they weren't the only ones. Many other nations fell to the Assyrians, and the result was they were all mixed together and then resettled in the various towns of Samaria. The result of that resettling can be seen in 2 Kings chapter 17, which says this. Each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they were settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at high places. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. Even while these people worshipped the Lord... They were serving idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did. And so you see, when the people come to Zerubbabel and say, let us help build your temple because like you, we've been worshipping your God. Well, they are telling the truth. Sort of. They had been worshipping Israel's God, along with all the other gods of all the other nations around them. And so Zerubbabel and Joshua hear what they have to say, but in verse 3 say, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, king of Persia, commanded us. And so you see, opposition, it doesn't always come in the form of armies and invasions. It's not always loud and in your face. And sometimes opposition can be subtle. Uh, Sometimes it comes in the form of half-truth and flattery. Jesus warns his disciples, doesn't he, of wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, Paul warns the Corinthians about false teachers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Opposition can be subtle. I remember realising this a few years ago when I spent some time with some Mormons They arrived at church one Sunday evening and I got chatting with them after the service. And in our first conversation, these guys were were really keen to tell me that we're all on the same side. We worship the same God and all this uh, division and distinction between us, it's not what God would want. That's how the conversation started. Uh, But then after a a couple of meetups, it slowly became clear that, that, no, we weren't on the same side. And we definitely didn't worship the same God. Though they called Jesus the Son of God, they didn't believe he actually was God, but rather an extra special human being who had been given God-like status. Whilst they said salvation was by grace alone, 
There were a number of other things that you had to do to make sure you reached the very top levels of heaven. You see, some of God's enemies will claim to be God's friends. Some opposition will be subtle. And so Jesus and Paul and the other New Testament writers all say that we need to be careful. We need to be on our guard. We need to test what people say against God's word, whoever they might be. Opposition can be subtle. But next we see it can also be severe. Having been rejected by Zerubbabel, the enemies now show their true colours in verse 4. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Uh, The subtle approach hasn't worked, and so now it's all-out opposition. And just notice that, that we're not actually told why. The writer of Ezra doesn't give us a motive or or a reason for the opposition. We're just told that these people simply didn't like the people of Judah. They hated them. And so they wanted to intimidate them, to threaten them, to make life hard for them. They were determined to stop God's people. And through bullying and bribery, it seems that is exactly what they did. Chapter 4 ends with the words, Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. For over a decade, God's people were prevented from building simply because some people had decided to oppose them. And again, the same thing happens today. Some people hate Christians simply because they're Christians. It's estimated that that over 340 million Christians around the world suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination just because they're Christians. That's one in eight worldwide, one in six in Africa, one in ten in Asia, and one in 12 in Latin America. And whilst here in the UK we might not face persecution like our brothers and sisters around the world... You don't need to spend much time on social media to see that some people really hate what Christians believe. Which means if you're a Christian this morning, some people really hate you. And whilst that can be hard to hear, whilst we might kind of search for some sort of reason or explanation for that kind of hatred, I think often we'll be left disappointed. We won't always know why people hate us. We just know that they will. In John chapter 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's preparing them for for life after he's gone. Just listen to what he says. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And so you see, it really doesn't matter how nice a Christian you are. 
It doesn't matter how much goodwill your church might build up in the community. It doesn't matter how generous or compassionate you have been. There will always be people who hate you. They will hate you because they hate Jesus. And you belong to him. And so whilst opposition is hard, whilst it is confusing sometimes, it shouldn't be surprising to us. Because Jesus tells us to expect it. Just as in Ezra chapter 4, sometimes people will oppose you just because you're a Christian. And sometimes it'll seem like that opposition has succeeded. That's the last thing we see in chapter 4. The opposition can seem successful. In verse 6, we fast forward to the reign of Xerxes and we see that opposition continues. It continues through his reign and on into the reign of Artaxerxes in verse 7. And then in verse 8 onwards, we're given an example, a a far more detailed uh, example of what that opposition looks like. Uh, This time, the focus is no longer on the temple, but on the city. And rather than flattery or outright intimidation, this time it's a, a political attack, a carefully crafted letter written to the king and designed to put a halt to the building work in Jerusalem. And as you read through this letter, you you can see some all-too-familiar tactics at play. First, there's exaggeration. Verse 9 and 10, I'm not going to read them the the names all again, but verse 9 and 10 are full of names and titles of officials from all over the Persian Empire. One commentator says that, that clearly Rehum and Shimshai are the movers and shakers, But they claim support of virtually the entire known world. It's as if they're saying, everyone who's worth listening to agrees with us. So you better pay attention, king. It's a massive exaggeration. We all agree to stop these people. But then there's speculation. Verse 13, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored... No more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. This is known as the the slippery slope argument. Oh, king, it, it might seem harmless now, but if you let them carry on building, we all know what's going to happen next. They'll get too big for their boots. They'll they'll stop paying your taxes. You'll be out of pocket, king, while they get richer and richer exaggeration, speculation, and then accusation. Notice how they begin the letter in verse 12 by describing Jerusalem as a wicked and rebellious city. And then in verse 15, they they back up that accusation with this seemingly innocent suggestion that the king might go and search his archives. Have a look at the history books, they say. We're pretty sure you'll find it's just rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. These people can't be trusted for one minute. You'd be a fool to let them rebuild their city. Verse 16, you'll be left with nothing, O king. Exaggeration, speculation, accusation. Like I say, these are all too familiar tactics, tactics that are still used to to undermine and oppose Christians today. And so it's a well-crafted letter. 
and it has the desired effect. Verse 17, the king responds. He orders the work to stop. And then in verse 23, Rehum and Shimshai waste no time in aggressively enforcing the new law. Work in the city is brought to a grinding halt, just as it was with the temple years earlier. And the reason the writer jumps forwards and backwards in time in chapter 4 from temple to city is to show that this kind of opposition, it, it was persistent. It was persistent and it was effective. At least that's how it seemed for the people at the time. You see, I know that that we stand outside of this. We, we know that chapter 4 is not the end of the story, not for the temple and not for God's people. But as we read it, we mustn't let knowing what happens next lose it, cause us to lose the impact of what's going on here. This is meant to be a sobering chapter for us. It's meant to remind us that, that God's people will face opposition. Sometimes it will be subtle, sometimes it will be severe, and sometimes it will seem successful. And the fact that it persists through the reign of four kings in Ezra reminds us that this is the normal experience for God's people. We should expect opposition. And so whether we've experienced it in our lives already or not, we mustn't be naive enough to think that we will be the exception. Remember those words that we read at the start. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Christians should expect opposition. And if current trends in society are anything to go by, well, we should expect it to increase in the years to come. And so that leaves us with a question, doesn't it? It leaves us with a question, what do we do about it? How do we respond? If if we do expect opposition, what should we do when we experience it, when it comes? Well, I want to suggest two things as we close, two things that come straight from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, do uh, flick to the New Testament to Matthew chapter 5 and just look there briefly with me. Matthew chapter 5, what should we do when we face opposition? Well, the first thing Jesus says we need to do in Matthew 5 is to love our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 says this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his, the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In one of the most countercultural things ever written, Jesus says we are to love the people who hate us. We are to pray for those who persecute us. Why? Because that is what God our Father is like. 
In his amazing love and mercy, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He gives life and breath and food and friendship and family and joy and happiness to people that hate him. God loves his enemies. He loves people who deserve nothing but his anger. And that is as true for us as it is for anyone else. As Christians, if you're a Christian this morning, as Christians we should expect of all people, we should understand what it is to be loved by God, even as we hated him. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was as we hated God, as we opposed him and threatened him and did everything in our power to get rid of him. That is when Christ died for us. You see, God loves his enemies to the point of dying for them. And so as those who have experienced that love, those who have received God's mercy and grace, we are called to love our enemies in the same way. How do we respond to opposition? How do we respond when we feel got at or or opposed or persecuted for our faith? Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then secondly, he says, remember your reward. Remember your reward. Just look back a few verses in Matthew chapter 5 to verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Following Jesus will be costly. If no one has ever told you that before, if you're, you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, what it's like to follow Jesus, then I really hope that's been clear this morning. Jesus does not promise to make life easier for you. In fact, he says if you follow him, then things are likely to get a whole lot harder. But he also promises that it's worth it. He promises that in the end, all opposition will be destroyed. In the end, everyone who's lived their life in rebellion against God and persecuted his people will be judged. And he promises to those that have been faithful, those that have trusted him, even when life is tough, they will hear those words, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness. One day we will experience the unending and immeasurable joy of seeing Jesus face to face and living with him forever. That is our great reward. And remembering that and looking to that is what enables us to rejoice and be glad even as we face opposition for following Jesus. Matthew 5 verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, Jesus says. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.
Our loving Heavenly Father, these are are hard words to hear. Father, we know that for us, (laughs) they are hard words sometimes to appreciate. Uh, in In a culture, in a society where we face relatively little opposition and persecution, sometimes it can be hard to appreciate these words. But Father, would you... Would you prepare our hearts? Would you prepare us for the opposition that you say we will face? Whether that is big or small. Father, would you help us to keep loving and praying for those who persecute us and hate us? And Father, would you help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, fixed on heaven that he has won for us? And would we rejoice and be glad even as we face opposition because we know that we follow Jesus, that we are his, and he will keep us to the end. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are right now experiencing much more severe opposition than we can imagine. Father, comfort them, strengthen them, help them to rejoice and be glad that their names are in heaven and that you will keep them to the end. And Father, we ask all these things in the name of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Amen.